Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guests today on the Suwannee Review Podcast are Chris Bashelder and Jennifer Habel. Chris is the author of four novels, including the National Book Award finalist, The Throwback Special, Jennifer Habel's second collection of poetry, The Book of Jane, won the Iowa Poetry Prize. Both are longtime contributors to the Suwannee Review. Both are previous guests on the podcast. Welcome back, the both of you, to the Suwannee Review podcast. Thanks for having us again, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Adam. We're here to discuss your new novel, the novel you co-authored, Day's Work. And I thought a, a really cool way to begin would be for each of you to give a description of the book, one that not only gives the reader a path into it, but that maybe gives us a window into how a pair of writers collaborate. I know where you both are in the pre-publication phase where you've got a spiel, but this is a co-author book by a husband and wife. So Jen, let's start with you. Like, How would you describe the book? This is probably our first pre-publication <laughs> event. So I don't think I have a spiel yet, but I actually think it's sort of hard for me to describe the book because I think it's about a lot of things. And so it is about a woman's obsession with Melville, but I think she could have gotten obsessed with somebody else too, you know, and she does read about all kinds of other people and other things. And and so it's a record of her reading obsessions during a particular time in her life. She turns 50 during the book, and I think she's reckoning with that and her age. And I think instead of maybe auditing her own life and her own ambitions, she's decided to audit Herman Melville's. Interesting. I think it's about art-making, ambition, the conditions that art is made under, and it's about approaching mortality in ways that we didn't foresee ended up being about partnerships, good ones and and bad ones, destructive ones. I mean, since Jen talked about the the sort of thematic elements or or its its subjects, I mean, one of the things for me, I was just really interested in, in the the form that developed of the book and, and um, like George Saunders in his book on the Russian writer says, you know, fiction comes to mean not by what it concludes, but by how it proceeds. And I was really interested in like how this book proceeds that's a an issue that's connected to character for sure. Uh, hopefully, it performs her character. But um, the I was came really attached to this form of this woman who wants to really precisely state something. Then there's white space. Uh, can she stand on this statement? Is it sturdy? And then move on to the next without. I just reread Moby Dick again this last summer and, and Ishmael or whoever is beyond Ishmael and, and the narration says, you know, the, in a project like this, the best the best way forward is careful disorderliness. <laughs> and I think that's a way to proceed, too. I mean, that's the way certainly Melville's proceeding. And it's a way not to compare ourselves to Melville, but like it's a way this book is there's a caution and a precision, but there's a disorderliness, too. There's a way in which she doesn't know what the next line is. We don't know what the next line is as she makes her way through the ocean of Melville research. Interesting. I'm going to use all my self-control not to jump ahead because you guys hit so many things I want to talk about. But we're talking about conception. I did kind of want to break this into three parts, which was, you know, 
conception, execution, and then realization, right? But with regard to conception of this book, I was hoping you could like set the scene for us. And I'm talking about autobiographically, I'm talking about in the creator's life. The pandemic has hit, we're in lockdown. Jen, I was hoping you'd talk about that particular time and then how day's work began to gestate, or maybe it was gestating in the run-up to the pandemic. But if you could talk about that, because I really do think that anyone reading this book is going to want to know, A, how did it start? And then B, how did you proceed? I started reading about Melville before the pandemic, I'd say in the fall of uh, 2019. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you be specific about that? What were you reading? So I came across a Jill Lepore article in the New Yorker where I learned that Melville had written Moby Dick in his farmhouse in Western Massachusetts. Never knew that. We used to live in Western Massachusetts. I've always been interested in that area of the country. I love it there. So that attracted my attention. Um, In the article, she talks a lot about one of Melville's sisters, Augusta. And I, I just became fascinated with what was going on in that house yes. where Moby Dick was written, which was a house full of women, Yes, you know, just with Melville there doing that. So it was a combination of coming across that article and also having learned of this existence of the Melville log, which is, it's like a ship's log where it just records like every single thing we know that's related to Melville in chronological order. Remind me, where does this live? The log? The log. I mean, it's, Jay Lida wrote this two-volume thing, and he did one for Emily Dickinson as well. And it's a it's an approached biography where there's basically no matter between the facts. It'll just be like January 13, Melville went to the post office and got a letter from Nathaniel Hawthorne. A, a captain's log of a literary life. Exactly. Yeah yeah. 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 So I was interested in that. I actually first started reading the Dickinson log, and I had some ideas about trying to write a something about Dickinson, but that felt overwhelming for many reasons. As a female poet, it just, it just felt, it, it just, it, I, I decided I wasn't going to continue on, on that yeah, research. Yeah, men are so simple. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Go for those brutes. Yeah. See all the way around them. I could get a better <laughs> handle on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I started to read actually about the women in Melville's life. I started to try to read about his sisters and his wife. And this is obviously before they had kids and they had their first boy. Before it's Malcolm, right? Malcolm's Malcolm is boy. their right, was their first their first son. I mean, it's all kind of mixed together. When he wrote Moby Dick, he already had, had Malcolm. Okay. And I was looking at those women, but I I just started getting more interested in him. Okay, but wait. So what was your actual Melville reading up until that point? Had you read Moby Dick? Had you read Type P? Had you read Billy Budd? Like, what did you read? Almost nothing. Interesting. You know, I, I love I love Bartleby. Yes, of course. Um, and I had read some of Moby Dick. I had not read all of Moby Dick. You Interesting. Know? Um, so really, the gateway into this was not Melville's work. Yeah, and you hadn't read Benito Serino. No, I hadn't read Benito Interesting. Serino. So- I will say, I will say as someone who knows Jen, that she's a voracious reader. So that's, that's fascinating to me, but anyway, keep going. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I feel like slightly embarrassed that I was not more of a Melville freak, but I think it would have almost been impossible to write this book if I were somebody who had read everything that Melville had written and loved his writing, because I would have been overwhelmed with the desire to quote him constantly. Sure. 
I was already overwhelmed with the desire to quote all these other things, you know? So I, I feel like, I mean, it's sort of a pun. I feel like I would have been drowned in a way if yeah, yeah. I, if I was somebody who was coming at this as a passionate Melville reader. But that's, but that's so interesting because in a way you wanted, so in a way it was the life and it was the situation. It wasn't mm -hmm. the text itself as it were. Yeah. I do want to jump ahead before I ask, pose the same question to Chris. Did you then do a deep dive into like Moby Dick and Typee and White Jacket and- I have not read all his, all his books. I've, I did read more of him, but I- Would you, did got you read Moby Dick? Yeah, I did read Moby Dick, All but I'm months? going to read Moby Dick again, actually, now. I I was, I like I said, I was getting nervous to get too swallowed up in, in the work. I thought it'd be hard to finish this book, honestly. We keep digressing, but don't you think that part of the scary aspect of reading Melville is the infectiousness of his language and the and this the, the almost tsunami effect of his style? I mean, it it does it does stove your own lexicon in a way. It, yeah, and, it does. Sorry to interrupt, but just also has this effect that we we could see because we were removed the the so-called more Melville vortex where people get sucked. Like the, the tendency is this over-identification with Melville sure. and the need to defend him. Um, yes. You know, uh, to at every turn. So I think the remove helped us in that sense too. I'm not saying we didn't fall into the Melville vortex or we don't have that. We don't have strong feelings about him as a writer and a, as a person, but we didn't, I don't think we, uh, I don't think we fell into that trap of just lionizing Melville and excusing all his faults. Sure. We need to swing back to you to finish where you were, but just quickly, Chris, in this sort of like chapter one of Jen's obsession, where where was Melville in your life as a writer up until this point? Yeah, I mean, once we we started going, I realized that he had played a bigger part than I had imagined. I once um, I taught him in a grad workshop, which was a peculiar choice at the time. I think in a grad MFA workshop, you taught Moby Dick. No stories. Okay, yeah, I wrote up a, a piece for the Believer one time that that was a very strange comparison of an NBA playoff series and Billy Budd. I had read some of the work. I'd read a fair. I'd read Moby Dick, and I'd read a fair amount of the work. But one, uh, I taught a class too on um, the Visitation one time, and, and it was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class before the pandemic. And uh, on Fridays, we would just read. I read Bartleby out loud to them, and we'd stop and talk. And I brought donuts, and I brought my poodle, and um, that was one of the more memorable teaching experiences I've had. And you know, Melville was part of that. So once I once I started thinking about it, I was like, oh yeah, Melville's threaded through my my teaching and my life in interesting ways. Just to, to pause there for one second before we head back to Jen, because we're, we're on conception. Do you remember your experience of reading Moby Dick? I, I would just like to share that when I was in grad school and broke as broke gets, I, I, I asked my dad, I was like, dad, can you, can you send me X amount of dollars? Because I really want to take a month off and I want to read Moby Dick. And I don't think it, it didn't take a month, but it did take a couple of weeks. Sure. And it's, it's a book of, it is a book of peaks and valleys. There are, there are for me, you know, again, no pun, dry patches, but I mean, but it's also a book that I just talk about, talk about a lesson in the importance of strong endings. I just remember the last 200 pages of Moby Dick being some of the most stratospheric writing I'd ever read in my 
life as a as a reader yeah but anyway no uh, you it, get past I, the first time i encountered it i wasn't equipped to to deal with it mm-hmm. um i wasn't equipped i didn't know enough i hadn't read enough contemporary fiction even to understand this i didn't so i survived it yeah yeah i think subsequently just enjoyed even the uh i found myself enjoying even the tedious passages in a way mm-hmm. right I enjoyed the survival aspect. I enjoyed the journey aspect. I, and then you do get these uh, 50 to 100 to 150 page passages that are, I mean, just sustained, sustained, incredible writing. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, coming back to where you were, so you, you developed this sort of obsession with the Melville milieu in Massachusetts, but then keep taking us through it. So you have that moment that I think all artists, artists have where they're unwittingly obsessed they're they're starting something without knowing they're starting something so when when did the machine become self-conscious as it were right (laughs) yeah it's hard to it's hard to remember it all i mean i i started as is my want just taking notes on things that i was reading i cast around for a while trying to write a little bit about these women in melville's life and then I had in poetry and prose, like how how were you uh, feeling around that? In poetry, uh-huh. in in poetry, and and then I had this idea where I started trying to write this series of poems that all started Dear Herman Melville. Um, <laughs> and it, yeah, I mean, it, you know, there were a lot of not good ideas. Dear Herman Dear Melville. Herman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I I knew I was going to try to do something that was like a book length. Thing. And okay. I, so I just kept casting around with different ideas that weren't really going anywhere. And where are we in actual history? Like, has the pandemic hit yet? I think at this point, the pandemic has hit. And okay. I think then we were both home together all the time. So I'd be messing around and I'd show what I was working on to Chris and we'd talk about it. None of it was really getting any traction. And what sort of ended up happening is we, started sort of writing sentences together without really thinking like, oh, we're collaborating. It was just, we were just sort of like messing around together on this thing that I was purportedly working on. But uh, after that went on for a while, it, it we, I don't know, I, I just remember thinking like, we're writing, we're writing together. That's actually what's happening is we're writing together. And we had this conversation that was like, do you want to just try to really write together? You know, do you want to try to write this book together? Wait, we got to back, we got to back up a little because this is going to be like a story of a marriage. Yeah. Is it common for you all when you're both working on your separate projects, when you were working on Book of Jane, throwback special, Abbott Awaits, how much exchange is there mid process? in the life of the two of you as writers. In other words, you coming, here you are in the pandemic, which maybe enforces or puts a whole different kind of pressure on proximity, on the rooms of a marriage. It's so interesting to me, this this is a book in stanzas, which are rooms. And the, the, if the pandemic was anything, it was like, go to your room. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. and, and everyone go to your room. In your own home, everyone go to your room. Oh, you're 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 exposed go to your room within the room go to your safe room but is that is that a typical able bashelder kind of thing to share or was this unique i mean i think this was the culmination of 
sort of 20 years of being involved in each other's work in different ways. We've never written sentences together, mm-hmm. you know, but have looked at each other's work at various stages, you know, made suggestions, talked about it, uh, just sort of, had, I think, become each other's first reader wow. and an editor. But I, I never would have described us as writing anything together. Right. Really co-writing a sentence right. i wouldn't say that's ever happened do you want to give a version of that chris like so when when for you that sort of really started and when because here again here we are in the pandemic she's obsessed i don't know what you're doing you can maybe <laughs> fill that in but like she's clearly down a rabbit hole and she's sharing this stuff with you as is her want mm-hmm. and how do you catch fire how do you catch interest and then what's your version of that she yeah she's reading she's talking to me about melville and then she's coming downstairs to the dining room table you know where i am and talking to me about it and has a laptop and we're just talking through things and my my job at this point is to try to jen's very deliberate very patient and things take a while to get going sometimes i felt like my job was like how can i make this go a little bit quicker and the right that's kind of funny because <laughs> i ended up taking us backwards i feel like but um, we'll get to that right um but so then yeah that just that so in some ways it felt it, you can tell a story where it's kind of inevitable where we're heading toward each each other i think early in our marriage i was more like secretive about what i was up to and then we and then gradually came I mean, there's no way we would collaborate 15 years ago even 10 years ago or even five years ago for so many factors personal and marital and pandemic related so in some ways it felt inevitable we're heading that way in some ways this was a complete surprise because there wasn't a day where we said hey let's why, why don't we try that it was like oh we're already kind of doing this you know and it was just this sentence to sentence level work and it was about trying to figure out what it was Initially, it was just really trying to help you. I wasn't trying to say, I, I, I wasn't trying to take it over or, sure. you know, yeah. take the book or anything. It was just trying to help you figure out what it was as a poetry, as a nonfiction. At some point, I think I, I said, you know what, I think this is a novel. Yeah, Chris did say that to me at some point because I was like, oh, I don't think it's poetry. I think maybe it's nonfiction. And he said, well, I think it's a novel because it's about this person. Like there's a narrator. You know, it's it's not a it's not attempting to be some some sort of nonfiction book about Melville. It's actually so, about this woman's obsession with Melville. Right. So, but, but so, what's that like? I mean, because there, there you are, your conception of yourself is as a poet. Yeah. And so, what's that moment like when the person you trust the most, I assume, is like, this is a novel. Walk down the aisle of the novel world of the novel church novelist lady. I mean, like, what, 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 you know, like, how did you feel about that? I remember feeling surprised, like, whoa, really? And then pretty quickly being like, oh, yeah, I can, I can see what you're talking about. Mm. I, my poetry had already been moving in the direction of prose sure. for a long time. So, and I was thinking of this project at that point as being prose sentences, but with white space. So, I was already thinking, okay, I'm writing prose, but that shift to being like fiction, like, whoa, wait, I'm going to make stuff up is, was, <laughs> was a weird feeling. But, I know it's the best, right? It's, it's fun. Yeah. It's really fun. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. 
This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. Also, just curious, like, like, so what about division of labor? Because at least to me from the outside, having read this twice, which I'd like to talk about at some point, having seen it in earlier iteration, as we, as we all know from any kind of writing, especially this book for you, and I'm sure in certain other things you've written, when you, when you have to integrate a certain amount of facticity into a novel, you have to have complete ownership of the facts to have a firm launch pad for the imagination. So you get this idea, the machine becomes self-aware. Did you go off and start reading? Did you go off and start rereading? That, that's what I'm sort of trying to get at. Like, cause at what point, I mean, obviously it's dynamic, but at what point are you like, mm, I need to go do X homework before we can write, or let's keep writing while we're doing X homework. See what I'm, you see what I'm asking? That's, that's a great question. Uh, this is going to sound weird, but the way it felt like writing this book, it was like, each sentence there was you you're standing on a rock and then you had to get to the next rock and there were each time we had to find it and so that was often like an informational leap we would be in a place and then we'd be looking for that next place and then we would both end up reading around in these books kind of like okay we're in this time here's where we are what are we looking for you know or or I would say I'd, I'd just start saying a bunch of different things. And then Chris would be like, maybe we should go here. I, like, I would, I would say like, oh, there's this, 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 this factual, interesting thing. And, and then you would say, what if we went here? No, right. you know, having heard. And then we'd start reading about that time. But your, your, your nods coming in, you had a lot. Yeah. And um, my relative ignorance early on was probably helpful in a way because you would just offhandedly say, oh, there was this time that Melville was uh, writing about Hawthorne and he got himself so worked up and he abducted a woman from the train station. And, took, <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like that is that's incredible. Right. But you were just like, yeah. And then there's this other time that, you know, um, yeah. and so yeah. that my outsider, like you had kind of processed some of this stuff. I had that sense of and it's gone now because I know I know the information, but like I can get a glimpse of like somebody reading for the first time some of these things about Melville that are because I remember that feeling. And then I would say as the work went on, I scrambled and did a lot of research later in different directions um, mm -hmm. about Melville, but other directions we were interested in trying to catch up. Yeah. And then there's a part sort of later in the book where actually like, Chris was the person who had done more of the research about it. So that was an interesting flip where he actually started knowing more about this one time period than I did. What time period was that? That was the like Pierre uh -huh. um, time period and that- <laughs> The uh, dark time. The dark time. Chris was on the, was doing the dark part time. Of the, part of the dark 40 years there. But <laughs> dark 40 years. <laughs> the beginning of Melville's life. Yeah. But the beginning of the, the advent of the dark time. Yeah. And then some peripheral figures, like uh, I ended up being sadly the like Murray and Morgan the Henry Murray. Yeah. So he, he read a lot about that, which I actually didn't read about. Uh, really quickly. It's, it, this is, this, this is a rock to rock thing, but what for you, if you had to say to anyone 
getting into Melville's biography, what books would you point them to? And and let me just tell, I, I, I will tell you this, like having read Melville, having read Benito Serino, I did feel this incredible kind of intertextual pull where, I mean, literally today I put Moby Dick back on my, I, I told you all I read Billy Budd last week for the first time. I put Moby Dick back on my desk. I'm like, I'm, I think I'm going to reread it. I mean, what, what would you, where would you send, what, 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 what three books would you be like, you got to read these three? Oh, about Melville? Yeah. Well, biography wise, I mean, I would read Elizabeth Hardwick's short sort of impressionistic mm-hmm biography for sure. And I read that many times. Mm-hmm. Del Banco's book is great in terms of like, he sets it more culturally, tries to set it in the wider world. And then there's these massive biographies by Herschel Parker, which is if you want to know about that abduction and you want to know that they ate muffins afterwards, that's where you read. <laughs> Waffles and muffins. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or, you know, you just want to know any minutiae but also the Melville log is actually really mm-hmm. interesting and fun to read. I might just read that. Interesting. Yeah. The great thing was that we didn't, we weren't very cautious. Well, we were somewhat cautious as we went through about keeping track of who said what, and we paid the price for this later when we had to <laughs> do permissions and, oh, yeah. and make sure our fact check ourselves. And, oh my god! But yeah. there was these, yeah, that. Oh, but there were moments where we'd have a quote and we knew it was from a biography, and Jen was just so good at saying, "That sounds like Laurent." <laughs> That sounds like that's a Del Banco, you know, that's hard, that's hard. Like she just knew the manner of the biographer and their pro style and what they were interested in. You were pretty good at like finding it if we needed to find it. Oh, I just want to tell you, having read this twice, I, there were parts of reading this book where I was thinking on the production end, I was like, I don't, I don't, I, I, I pity them. I would not have wanted to find tooth comb this book in terms of from a permission slash assembly slash you know, it's it. It would be kind of like you know, Melville talks about having to scrape a book from your brain. Yeah, there's there, there's a kind of like you know, finding the space between the collage. I don't know. It must have been a little bit. That was not fun. Yeah, if we had known that was coming, I don't know if it would have. I'm, I'm yeah. glad we didn't know. I'm glad that I had no idea that that was going to have to happen because it would have changed the book. Yeah, because I would have realized. No, I don't want to do that, you know? <laughs> and I was sometimes when we were going through that process, I would think about Melville, who was so lazy about even correcting any errors in his books. They would right. just come back and he couldn't be bothered to even right. fix the grammar, you know? And I would just be thinking like, even I'm sitting here doing this meticulous thing about this person who was just like, whatever about his own, you know? But to sort of sum up, generally speaking, the modus operandi was rock to rock in the sense that like you you make a forward move you'd stay there mm-hmm. you'd read up you'd move forward that not just being on a like stands at a stanza level but but a movement to movement level i mean in terms of the books division does that sound about right or really like a stanza to, i'm going to call them stanzas but a stanza is it a stanza to stanza level does that sound right yeah i think that's right yeah what was a frustrating waste of time was you would try to map out where you're going you know you'd mm-hmm. be like i'm gonna then go here and then here and then here and then here and and, and then it wouldn't work yeah i mean she you were patient enough and had enough to i would try to sometimes think a little bit ahead for the next day's work like where where can we go and then sit down and immediately understand that wasn't going to work you know jen, sure. jen was more but so we'd know we'd know in general like we we, we know a run we wanted we called a run we knew like 
hop onto this. We had this metaphor of like, where will this shoot us out? It's a funny metaphor if you think about like the the that these rocks, these series of rocks would be some kind of flume mm-hmm. that were like entering and they would shoot us out somewhere as if we're not in control, but it's kind of how it felt. We knew that there were these runs we wanted to do, but anytime we tried to force it, me mostly, anytime saying, let's start this run now about Melville's old age or about Hardwick and Lowell or something, it never worked. I do, what I'm about to say is something that if you're if you don't want to talk about it we don't have to talk about it because this is a behind the curtain a little bit but but i did get to see an early draft was there a bit of a pivot in the writing of it where you were like okay it's not so much that we need a recognizable narrative but there needs to be a sense of something that resembles an overarching plot because i did i did sort of feel that when i looked at that early version it wasn't that it was so much a flaw but it just seemed where you guys were in the process on a draft level. Are you guys okay to talk about that? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I mean, this was something that Chris really brought to the project was at some point basically saying, we have to have a sense of how much time is passing. Yes. And there has to be some shape. For example, it was Chris's idea that the husband gets COVID or gets the COVID scare and goes to the basement. It's just like one thing that happens. That didn't happen in real life. Is that no? That's made up, right? Just to give it some narrative shape. Well, didn't didn't also the introduction of I'll say for our listeners that part of part of the sort of overarching plot of the book is is the wife looking at the marriage again with a kind of uh, doing an audit of the marriage and looking at you know the bad time in which they were marooned and you could almost talk about how in a very quiet way she is trying to justify their lives as a couple or justify her own life as the wife of as as a very loyal and dedicated family person and that seemed to me like one of the real sort of if not new parts of the novel that you all introduced one you put a lot more pressure on in the two drafts that I saw mm-hmm. was that right that's right yeah yeah, yeah. We heard from you and uh, really just a few people saw this in process, our agent and then our editor, and heard from everybody more more of this couple. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, set about inserting that into the book. And I would just like to say, knowing both of you, that must have been really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was excruciating. Those, those were the hardest parts uh, of the book to write. So hard. And I was, I fought that and I was wrong. <laughs> I did, I did fight it. I had this idea that anything she noticed, anything our narrator noticed or was interested in revealed her, performed her. Right. Right. It's an, in negative space. Yes. And that it could be. And so that was my idea that, um, and it took, take some work on the, but yeah, the, it was right to add those other parts. It was not any, but nobody was asking for this like 50, 50 oh, ratio, yeah, yeah, right? No, 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 no. It was I'm just not... like 20, 80 or something like getting it up to. Right. Like, just... No, I mean, a novel has, to, it, it is a first person narration. Mm-hmm. So in any first person narration, you're dealing A, with dramatic irony and B, there has to be a pivot around some kind of problem. And that, I mean, again, I think what's interesting about this book is the scale is like so small. It is so domestic in that way. But there are moments where these gigantic expanses of feeling open out because of an internal shift in our our narrator's feeling about where she is. And that, you know, that brings me to realization 
they're like numerous marriages in the book, right? Yeah. There's yeah. there's Melville and Lizzie, there's Melville and Hawthorne, there's Elizabeth Hardwick and Robert Lowell, there's Tolstoy and his wife Sophia, there's the biographer in Melville, there's the biographers in Melville, they're the artists in Melville. So I I was like, you could, for instance, discuss the marriage of David Gilbert in Melville or Maury Sendak in Melville. There's the marriage of scare quote Chris Bashelder and Jennifer Hable. Yeah. And then there's Chris Bashelder and Jennifer Hable and Melville. One of my questions is, what does it mean to share your life with someone? And what does a marriage to an artist in particular reveal about the challenges of marriage? I mean, because that seems like something you're trying to, you're trying to get at what justifies a life, right? Mm -hmm. And in a book that is about marriage to a person, marriage to work. I mean, what are some of your thoughts on that? It's mm, a great thing to think about. I think some of the book is concerned with the importance of what an individual can make versus how that individual comports themselves in their relationships, which is more important, why, you know, how... How do relationships support someone's individual aspirations, you know? And I've thought so much in recent years about all the people that contribute to anything that's made. And it's not really, I think, the, just the person who makes it. It's, it's all these people that are in the house with that person. Sure. And live with all the tiny acts of selfishness that are required in order to make a book. Yeah. And what that does to a relationship. Yes. You know, and how you, how your relationship grows around that thing, enables it or is misshapen by it, or it's just a central fact. And we've been married 21 years where we're both trying to do these independent things. I, I, I don't know if this gets at what you mean, but there's a two writer household, there's this, there can be a competition for resources, you know, uh, when you're writing solo. Um, and child rearing and um, the the collaboration was a kind of hack in that way um, that if one of the things that bothers Jen about me is like being off in my own head, God, just working over a project like she still she still saw that, but it was it was in service of our book together. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it didn't. And so we were just kind of rowing together in this way, like Harbo and Samuelson became really important to us. Those are the two Norwegian immigrants yes. who uh, we have in the book who rode across the Atlantic in 1896. It's a ridiculous thing. So they, that picture of them, there's a picture of them and that, that idea of that's another marriage, you know, of the that, many that's years. That's absolutely another yeah. marriage. That, and then also on top of that, working through a couple, that's us, but not us sort of in the book, of working through some of their working together to dramatize some of the worst parts of the marriage was really, really interesting, unforeseen and, and um, at the risk of sounding cheesy, like maybe healing or something like that. I mean, we, the stuff that's in the book and the marriage is not an open wound. It's a scar. Right. But it's just in the, and part of the book is about coming to terms with um, just coming to terms with who you married, like you, what you want, and what you get. Well, there's this real, there's this real, it's not tension, but it's the, it's, it's, it's all the valences of, what a day's work is, right? I mean, like there is the day's work of waking up in the middle of the night to get an infant fed. 
But then there's the, and I think you're very suspicious of this, the narrator is, <laughs> of the heroic day's work, the culturally prized, heroic, artistic day's work of producing this great thing, this idea, which in ways is both true and completely freaking preposterous when like James Wood will be like, you know, Moby Dick justified Herman Melville's life. And I really think that if you had talked to Melville like 20 years post Moby Dick, he would not have been like, yeah, that justified my life. I'm mm -hmm. feeling great. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe talk a little bit about that. Cause you, I think that one of the tensions in the book for you, Jen, is the cultural pressure, the, the limiting, the expectation that the woman is saddled with more of the day's work vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis the heroic artist. And that's where Hardwick comes in. That's where Lizzie comes in, another Liz. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You know, whether it's collation, whether it's post-mortem championing, whether it's a kind of, not to pass judgment on Hardwick, because I don't, we don't know enough about anybody to do such things, the older I get. Mm-hmm. But to you know her kind of loyalty to Lowell yeah. and her just testament that it, yeah maybe life would have been better if I weren't with him but maybe this the most important thing I ever did in my life I mean thoughts on that yeah well I think that generally speaking I think women's minds are more cluttered with everyday needs and debris you know especially if you have children and I have a lot of women friends who are writers and i think they struggle with that with and and feeling like their brains are more bogged down than their partners are if their partners are male and i mean i am you know suspicious of this revering the great usually male genius that does this enormous book but at the same time i know that a certain level of monomania is often necessary to create these things sure. and i love these things that are created and I would say that an interesting thing about the pandemic was that I had the opportunity to be more monomaniacal than I've ever been. And that was necessary for this book to be created. You know, so I'm very, uh, you know, conflicted about about this issue. But I'm obviously I've been writing about it for a long time, so it's it's preoccupying to me. There is this like art life tension and mm -hmm. you think about Harbo and Samuelson you think about the unwritten book of Harbo and Samuelson's trip, and <laughs> you're like, that was a day's work, man. I mean, like, yeah. what, th like, don't tell me that those guys <laughs> didn't see some shit that, yeah, that is as great and as wondrous and as awful in the uh, romantic period sense uh, as what Melville wrote about. It's astonishing, and it seems so arbitrary. Let's let's row across the ocean, but <laughs> like, what doesn't start to seem arbitrary? You know, writing a book, you can you can say, well, you're trying to create something enduring, but like, it, it's it's pretty arbitrary as well. So there's something we appreciated about these lunatics who were just like, let's let's do this. In some ways, one of the beautiful things about the book is it's it's sort of a testament to how a marriage can can manage and contain. A kind of artistic madness it is the it is kind of the counterpoint to a hardwick lowell 
I mean, I guess I came away from it being like, oh, have have Chris and Jen discovered that the greatest form of marital therapy is to write a novel together? Is that? <laughs> it's like it's that. That's that's what. That's all you do. That's all you have to do. It's funny that when we tell people about this, they usually say like, "I could never do that with my partner." Right? You know, <laughs> yeah, that would end in divorce or homicide, or yeah. you know, that's just impossible. So it it was a remarkably positive experience for I think both of us, but I never would have anticipated that, and I this whole like issue of like what matters in the end, you know, what you've made or right. the relationship you've had and all this stuff. I'm, as we're talking, I'm, I've been thinking about how I'm very proud of this thing we made, but honestly, I most revere the process we went through in making it. Right. And that, cause that was so surprising and so interesting. Right. And such a unexpected joy after I've been married for a long time to relate in a new way to this person that, that, that you have gone through ups and downs and boredoms and all these <laughs> things, you know, sorry, <laughs> you know, um, to have a new way to relate and to just sort of appreciate that person. Like, wow, you're good at that was, was very healing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've played a lot of tennis with Chris over the years, and I've really seen him grow, and it's been a lot. <laughs> See, we have our thing, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We have our thing. We're it's, collaborating. It's been really beautiful. I guess maybe you know I don't usually end podcasts this way, but I think oh, well, I think I just because it's so sort of exemplary of what we've been talking about. So I'm going to have you all read this one part from Day's work, this one section of Day's work, and we'll end there and. Jen, I'll have you set that up, but before you set it up, let me just say thank you all for being on the Swanee Review Podcast once again, and let me just say that uh, Day's work reads to me like something really major and wonderful and beautiful and entirely original, and it was, it's been real a real pleasure to see it come into the world. Thank you, and thank you for critical input at an important time. Yeah, and for supporting both of us yeah. uh, for a long time. Teeny weeny, teeny weeny. So this is a section from uh, Day's work that is fairly late in the novel. The novel is about a woman who becomes obsessed with reading about Herman Melville during the pandemic and uh, also addresses uh, Melville's relationship with Nathaniel Hawthorne. That's pertinent to this section. The um, character of the biographer is mentioned, who is the Herschel Parker, the main uh, Melville biographer. And in this section, the speaker's husband is quarantined in the basement. And I should also say this novel is set during the pandemic. This morning, I'm unable to access HaMelDB, a searchable database created by a college student at Bard Simons Rock in 1999. She created this database after extensive research into the relationship between Hawthorne and Melville, her chosen topic for a class assignment. The student's Hawthorne and Melville inquiry log, however, is available online and provides the outcomes of some of her database searches. Was Melville's love for Hawthorne unrequited? Three sources, yes. Six sources, no. Was the relationship between Hawthorne and Melville non-platonic? Seven sources, yes. Five sources, no. Was Melville part of the reason Hawthorne moved from the Berkshires? Six sources, yes. Three sources, no. Was there an estrangement between Hawthorne and Melville at the end of their relationship? Two sources, yes. Five sources, no. 
One of the sources the student found most useful was her ILL copy of Harrison Hayford's 1945 dissertation, Melville and Hawthorne, a Biographical and Critical Study. She was so engrossed by Hayford's study that she read it in a day, finishing it in her car outside of Price Chopper. The dissertation was particularly helpful because it listed all known meetings between Hawthorne and Melville from 1850 to 1851, either eight or nine, depending on how one delineates a meeting. If you spend the night at someone's house and the next day that person comes back with you to your house and spends the night, is that one meeting or two? That's one. Although he couldn't prove it, Hayford speculated that Melville and Hawthorne met an additional time in November 1851 when Melville would have presented Hawthorne with a copy of Moby Dick dedicated to him in admiration of his genius. This episode, Hayford added in a footnote, is purely conjectural. This meeting remained conjectural, though plausible, for 47 years until the summer of 1992, when it was confirmed in a triumphant feat of archival research by Hayford's former student, Herschel Parker, the biographer. This morning I see that in the summer of 1987, he was in the Boston Public Library searching microfilm of Massachusetts newspapers for reviews of Moby Dick, when he came across an article in the Lowell Weekly Journal and Courier published December 19, 1851, and reprinted from a longer version in the Windsor Journal. The article, a dispatch written by an anonymous special correspondent from the Vermont newspaper, describes the Lennox cottage of the famous literary recluse Nathaniel Hawthorne. Determined to see the original version, as well as any other dispatches from the special correspondent, the biographer typed a note into his large computer file on the year 1851 must find Windsor, Vermont Journal. He enlisted the help of a Portsmouth historian who five years later found the journal and sent the biographer a packet containing photocopies of articles written by the special correspondent. At 2 p.m. mail and all hell broke loose, the biographer noted in his diary. Contained in the packet was a second dispatch from the correspondent documenting a meeting between Melville and Hawthorne at a Lenox hotel. Not very long ago, the author of The Scarlet Letter and the author of Typee having, in some unaccountable way, gotten a mutual desire to see one another, as if neither had a home to which he could invite the other, made arrangements in a very formal manner to dine together at a hotel in this village. What a solemn time they must have had, the correspondent wrote. These mighty conjurers in the domain of the imagination, all alone in the dining room of a hotel. The biographer read the photocopied article with shaking hands. Here was the meeting that Hayford had imagined almost 50 years ago. Jesus, he wrote in his diary, my mind is wild. He sat at his computer and deleted his old note to himself. Must find Windsor, Vermont Journal. Next, he shared the news with Jay Lida, who's the Melville log he had for years been updating and augmenting. Lida, who had been dead four and a half years, was, according to the biographer, the only dead scholar I talked to. Wanted a drink, he wrote in his diary, although he had forsworn alcohol six years earlier so that he could remain optimally alert as he attempted to finish his Melville biography. In lieu of a celebratory drink, he called Hayford, then Maurice Sendak, and then went back to work. Eventually, the biographer realized that his biography would have to be divided into two volumes, each one longer than the proposed whole, and he faced the question of where to split the life. You don't have any choice, a fellow Melvillian told him. You have to end it in the hotel. 
The final chapter of the first volume, Melville and Triumph, indeed concludes with Melville's meeting with Hawthorne at the Lenox Hotel on perhaps November 14, a Friday, the official publication date of Moby Dick. It was, according to the biographer, a sacred occasion in American literary life. At some well-chosen moment, he wrote, Melville took out the book whose publication they had both been awaiting and handed his friend an inscribed copy. Hawthorne, he wrote, was profoundly moved by Melville's gift. Enveloped in tobacco smoke, the two men lingered long after the dining room had emptied, each reverential toward the other's genius, each aware that when they met again in West Newton, in Boston, or wherever their fates might bring them together, they would not fall at once into these present terms of intimacy. Take it all in all, Volume 1 concludes. This was the happiest day of Melville's life. The claim seems dubious, but last night I couldn't figure out if the problem lies in the selection of this particular day out of all of Melville's many days, or if it lies in the presumption to assess the happiest day in the life of someone else, particularly someone so mysterious and dead, or if it lies in the potential confusion of happiest with other superlatives, such as most content, or most consequential, or most memorable, or if it lies in the belief in the very concept of a happiest day of a life. I lay awake thinking of some of the happy days of my life, but the thought that any one of them might be the happiest day of my life I found unhappy. Of course I didn't like the idea that on the happiest day of Melville's life, his wife was at home nursing their newborn son, despite suffering from a breast infection so painful the walls in her room had been draped with sheets because the pattern of the wallpaper made her dizzy. Some of my happy days were nights, in our nursery, reading Howard's End. You don't have any choice. You have to end it in the nursery. That small room had a Dutch door, I remember. From its window I could see, when the leaves were down, the northeast corner of the hayfield, its birds dropping and lifting like thoughts. If my husband had been with me last night, I might have woken him up with a hand on his back and told him that awful story about Lizzie Melville and the wallpaper. Or, because I knew he would like it, a scholar's sweet memory of Harrison Hayford calling the Chicago White Sox the Great White Sox. Or the biographer's extraordinary claim about Melville's happiest day. Or John Updike's allegation somewhere that Hawthorne was at his happiest in the Berkshires, though he didn't know it. Or my suspicion that I must not understand anything at all about happiness. Or my eager anticipation of the forthcoming first biography of Elizabeth Hardwick or Maurice Sendak's refusal to find out the age of his German shepherd, Hermann, because he didn't want to know, and in fact wished he didn't know his own age. Or my heretical paraphrase of Mary Rufel's poem, My Happiness, in which the speaker's happiness follows a porcupine into a culvert. If my husband had been there, I might not have lain in the dark, attempting to calculate the number of days Herman Melville lived, but then again I might have. The number I derived, inaccurate, but not wildly, it turns out, meant nothing, then anything, then one thing. I once, like other spoonies, cherished a loose sort of notion that I did not care to live very long, wrote Herman Melville at age 43. It's easy to find this passage in the letters of Herman Melville because Melville drew a skull and crossbones. By the way, death in my skull seems to tip a knowing sort of wink out of his left eye. What does that mean, I wonder? A spoonie, I see, is archaic British slang, 
meaning a fool or simpleton, derived perhaps from the shallowness of a spoon. And I see it was not Updike but Paul Oster who wrote that the summer before Hawthorne moved away from the Berkshires was the best moment of his life, whether he knew it or not. Looking back on Hawthorne's career now and knowing that he would be dead just 13 years later, a few weeks short of his 60th birthday, that season in Lennox stands out as one of the happiest periods of his life, a moment of sublime equipoise and fulfillment. The Hawthorns left Lennox in a snowstorm on November 21, one week after Melville and Hawthorne dined in the hotel. Melville's publication party, the biographer calls it, to which he invited a solitary guest. Hawthorne appears to have read Moby Dick in two days, sitting in his study while his wife packed the house and took care of their three young children, nursing the infant, Rose. What a book Melville has written, he wrote to a mutual friend weeks later. The letter he wrote to Melville about the book, likely destroyed by Melville, is the unlocated item most desired by Melvillians. Imagine the auction value, the biographer wrote, especially if Melville made on it any notes for his reply. Melville's reply the next day was, according to the Hawthorne biographer, one of the most extraordinarily intimate letters one author ever sent another. Why don't you read it to me? My husband said last night on the phone. I don't know, I said. It's kind of intense, I said. I told him it was easy to find online. Just read it to me. It was late. It felt too late for Melville's precipice. But my husband doesn't ask for much. He requires a lot, but he doesn't ask for much. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesawanireview.com. To discover what's happening at the review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Sewanee Review. Until next time, this is The Sewanee Review, new since 1892.